Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. And on today's episode, we're going to be getting into a hard bop classic. We're going to be getting into Lee Morgan for the first time on our podcast. And the album for today is The Sidewinder by Lee Morgan, um, joined by some just fantastic musicians. So, Max, why don't you get us? We're going to jump right into this one. Um, we're not going to do a listener question or a jazz question of the day, but if you do have a listener question, feel free to reach out to us and uh, submit your questions. The Jazz Jam Podcast at gmail.com is a great place to do that, or go to our website. Our website's linked in the bio, and you can uh, you can reach out to us there as well. So, Max, why don't you get us uh, started into the history of the album? Let's just get right into it today. Well, we're in for a real treat. This album, The Sidewinder, from the great trumpeter Lee Morgan, was first recorded on December 21st, 1963 at the uh, quintessential Rudy Van Gelder studio in Inglewood Cliffs, New Jersey, of course, for Blue Note Records. So we're dealing with another ultimate, fantastic Blue Note recording here from Lee Morgan and company. It was released in 1964, and the title track itself was also released a little bit later as a single and the single hit the pop charts. So this album is notable for a number of reasons. Number one being that it was uh, rated highly on both the uh, jazz charts as well as the pop charts. And so it reached number 81 on Billboard's Hot 100 in January of 1965. So this is one of those we call a crossover album, which um, is a record that that is, is successful both in the in the world of pop music and in jazz. Um, and so it crossed over in terms of pop popularity. And this became Blue Note Album's best-selling record. The Sidewinder song was also used in a Chrysler TV advertisement without Lee Morgan's consent. So I believe there was a, a little bit of a lawsuit that occurred where, um, you know, they ran the ad with the Sidewinder the, the song playing in the background and Lee Morgan didn't know they were going to do that. So he basically got them to pull the ad from airing because they didn't get his permission. He didn't make any money off of that. And so they settled the case and they had to pull that Chrysler TV ad because they did not get Lee Morgan's consent to run it. Um, so there's, there's some, a lot of really interesting history with this song and this album. And it was also used as a theme for TV shows or TV specials in the mid-1960s. So a lot of popular use of this music, especially the title track, The Sidewinder. And then the next couple of albums from Lee Morgan that came out right after tried to emulate similar success by formatting the same music formula that worked to combine a soul jazz boogaloo type blues tune with hard bop originals, but none were as successful as this one, The Sidewinder. So we get from the leader, the great Lee Morgan. He was a trumpeter and composer born in Philadelphia in 1938. He got into music at an early age, learning vibraphone and then getting a trumpet when he was just 13 years old. He was influenced by the great Clifford Brown, whom he got to study with for a little bit. He soon rose to prominence when he was just 18, and he's known for being a significant sideman on monumental records like the album Blue Train from 1957 as he started recording for Blue Note Records in 1956. He was also soon an, an important member of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers when he joined them in 1958. Think about the album Monin, 
as well as many others that really uh, brought Lee Morgan into the forefront of this music. And he was also responsible for bringing in the great Wayne Shorter, once Benny Golson left, into the Jazz Messengers. Lee Morgan is also known for having some drug issues in the early 60s. Um, and he returned to Philly to deal with that before returning to New York to get back to work in 1963, which is when he began recording prolifically as a leader and a sideman until his death in 1972, where, if you don't know the infamous story, he was shot by his longtime lover, his common-law wife named, named Helen Moore, who went by Helen Morgan because they were together for so long. And um, she, she sh shot him while he was at a gig at Slug's, Slug's Saloon. And the injury was not immediately fatal, but the ambulance took too long to get there due to the snowstorm that was happening and the road conditions that were just too, too bad to drive on. And so he ended up bleeding to death and died at the age of 33. And there's a great movie on Netflix you can watch called I Called Him Morgan that talks about this um, and, and in a lot more depth. Yeah, and that's that's a fantastic um, movie to watch. And it's cool because uh, Helen Moore is from Wilmington, North Carolina, where we're from. And I believe that she met Lee in Wilmington when he was playing it. There was an actual jazz club in Wilmington at the time. Um, I forget the. Do you know the name of it, Max? You know, off the top of my head, I don't. But um, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about, but I don't remember the name. Yeah. So she met him in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is crazy because that's where Max and I are from. So, um, but yeah, just a cool. It's I mean, just a kind of crazy story, you know. And only 33 years old to to die in that fashion is a very tragic it's a very tragic story and you know that movie i called him morgan not only deals with that particular story but the influence of lee morgan his um his prowess as a as an artist and his musicianship and, and the relationships he had so i highly recommend checking that out it's not that long of a movie i think it's an hour and maybe 10 minutes or so but definitely worth it um called i called him morgan and then the other uh, great horn player on this album is the um, just stupendous player, Joe Henderson, on tenor saxophone. Joe Hen was born in Ohio in 1937. His family encouraged him to study music. He was one of 14 children. God, that's so many kids to keep track of. He um, soon got into piano and saxophone as a kid. He listened and transcribed a bunch before playing in the Detroit scene also studying at Wayne State University and Kentucky State College, studying with the likes of Larry Teal. If you don't know Larry Teal, he practically wrote the book on how to play saxophone, um, or at least he wrote one of the books on how to play saxophone. So Johan was right in there with Larry Teal, learning in the moment at the university and on the bandstand. He was also in the Army for a period of two years, where he often got to entertain the soldiers playing, before, um, uh, before of course, leaving the Army, then he would move to New York and met the great Kenny Dorham, the great trumpeter and composer, while he also got to sit in with the great Dexter Gordon. And he soon joined Horace Silver's band. And think about great albums like this, uh, the one Song for My Father, the tune Song for My Father, and the great Horace Silver album, of which Joe Henderson is a big part of. And from 1963 to 1968, he was recorded on 30 albums for Blue Note, 
five of them as a leader, including the great album Inner Urge. And then he began playing with the likes of Freddie Hubbard and Herbie Hancock, as well as having a short stint with the uh, the rock group Blood, Sweat, and Tears before moving to San Francisco in 1971, where he ultimately recorded a bunch for Milestone Records and then continued to play and record in the 90s um, with Verve Records until he passed in 2001 from heart failure and complications with emphysema. Apparently, he was a big chain smoker, mm. which is... Hard to get away with as a saxophone player, but that's what he was. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Imagine playing on 30 different albums in six years. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I guess it's it's times were just different back then, but I don't know. It feels like people put out like maybe one album a year now, you know, especially even in jazz still. I mean, I don't guys might play on two or three albums, but not you know, in a year, but not 30 in in six years. That's wild. And if you don't know, there's kind of three phases to Joe Anderson. There's the Blue Note phase, which is, you know, the mid-60s. Then there's the Milestone Records phase, which is kind of early to mid-70s. And then the big next big phase was the early 90s when he was on Verve Records. And he, he put out a bunch of sort of theme albums where he paid tribute to people like Miles Davis, and those did really well. And there was kind of a period of time from the 70s to the 90s where he was pretty underappreciated during that Milestone Records period. And we'll talk more about that when we get into uh, an actual Joe Henderson-led album. But there's a lot to talk about there in those three phases of Joe Henderson. So more on him as we go on in this podcast and another one where we'll we'll do a Joe Hen album. And, and those two players are paired with a tremendous rhythm section on this album first being the great pianist barry harris do anyone t- tell us about barry yeah barry is i'm i was surprised we hadn't done barry i was like max have we not gone over barry harris yet and he's like no we haven't done anything with him so yeah we're glad to have him here on this album i mean what an album to to first listen to barry harris on he was born in detroit in 1929 and he learned the piano from his mother who was a church pianist at the age of four so just another prodigy as you know so many other musicians that we've come across on the on the podcast and he began listening to bop and learning bud powell and monk recordings and performed throughout the detroit scene before he moved to new york and then start playing with guys such as uh, Dexter Gordon, Illinois Jaquette, Hank Mobley, uh, Hawk, Coleman Hawkins, and just um, many, many more musicians. I mean, as we said, 30 recordings in five, or six years. So, um, But yeah, he recorded as a sideman, and then he started recording as a leader around 1960. And uh, he went to perform in New York and the u.s and and in japan in the the 1990s so and another thing about barry harris is he's just um a big educator of the music a big teacher of the music he was never afraid to like kind of talk about his thought process and jazz and the way that he thought about um different techniques and soloing and different things and so he collaborated with uh howard Rees on videos and workbooks which kind of documented his harmonic and improvisational systems and teaching processes so there's just a lot of barry harris to soak in especially if you're wanting to learn how to play the music barry harris is a, a great resource and there are lots of videos you can you can check out um with him you know explaining what he's thinking 
Yeah, he's if, if you go on YouTube, you just type in Barry Harris Masterclass, you'll get one after another of him describing in the moment while on the piano being surrounded by students what his thought process is. It's very um, sort of antithetical to what you would initially expect if you were brought up in the in the sort of the university tradition of teaching mm -hmm. jazz. Mm -hmm. He was not big on modes. He had his own way of thinking about it. He said modes are a way that the university could monetize off of, um, you know, uh, their education system. And it was a, just sort of a go-to formula that they could pump out to as many young players as possible in order to get as many students as possible to stay in the system and complete their degree. And they sort of, um, in, in Barry Harris's eyes, sort of reduced um, all the intricacies of jazz harmony in such a way that was disrespectful and also not helpful as an improviser. Mm, yeah. And I, I love watching some of his videos and he has like, just like some really cool ways that he thinks about things in the way that like certain, like he'll break things down to a level to where like, he's like, all right, you know, this is what I'm thinking about when I'm, you know, in this, this kind of chord or this, these kinds of changes. And it's just, I don't know. It's awesome to listen to him to uh, talk about that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, he passed away in 2021, unfortunately, and it was uh, due to complications caused by COVID-19. So yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, we lost Barry Harris due to, to COVID. But next on the album, we get uh, Bob Cranshaw, who is the bassist. He was born in Chicago in 1932. Um, he's an, He was an active uh, bass player whose long career goes back to the, the heyday of the Blue Note Records, well known for his long association with Sonny Rollins, um, played with him on and off for basically 50 years, and was also on a number of Shirley Scott and uh, Stanley Turrentine records. And he passed away in 2016 at the age of 83 due to uh, cancer. And Bob Cranshaw just has a huge discography. He's played with so many, so many um, different artists. And I've noticed he plays, he's played a lot with Billy Higgins. Um, I see those two guys a lot on on albums as the, the bassist and the drummer. And so next we're getting into the drummer who is Billy Higgins, born in 1936 in L.A., extensive freelancer um hard bob musicians and he was a house drummer for blue note records so kind of both of these guys almost you know felt like house rhythm section for blue note just playing on so many different records with so many different people um billy higgins was on over 700 recordings and i think he was with blue note pretty much the whole time right for a long time i mean he was pretty much their house drummer um and, and they did that with a few different players, but Billy Higgins is, is on a lot more albums than you would think or you would expect. So he's he's all over. And we went over him on the Dexter Gordon Go album review episode. I think that was the third episode of the Jazz Jam. So if you want to find out more about Billy Higgins, we go over him a little bit more in depth in episode three of the Jazz Jam podcast. Yeah, so that's that's the personnel for this album. Some new musicians, some greats that we haven't gotten into. I mean, I think, yeah, only Billy Higgins is the only one. And these other guys are just like, it's kind of wild that we haven't talked about any of them yet. But it's what a great way to to get into their, you know, their music. So let's start out with the title track, the track that, you know, the album is named after the single that came from the album, which is kind of rare for jazz albums for it to be released, anything to be released as a single. 
Um, so that is the track, the Sidewinder. And the Sidewinder, it's, you know, a lot of these compositions are very much based in, in blues music, and this is no different. This is a 24-bar form. It's basically just kind of an extended blues form, and there's a two-bar break at the end of the form, which happens pretty much every time through the form. Um, and so the song starts out with the rhythm section playing through the changes once, and then the horns come in with the melody. And just right off the bat, we get... Joe and Lee are just blending so well on the melody, which it's going to happen on every single melody. It seems like, in my opinion, this album's just like been so well rehearsed. They are so together. There seems to be like this kind of musical chemistry between the two. And so they're just so, in this melody, they're so together in their articulation and everything that's going on with their treatment of this melody. So I want us to listen to this iconic melody. Um, and we'll start here at 37 seconds on the Sidewinder. Yeah, I was moving in my chair. It's so the great thing about some of this music on this album in particular, and in in a lot of hard bop recordings, uh, it's danceable. You know, like the of course there's the 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 aspect of the swing, and the emphasis of the blues. But you know, I think part of the popularity of the Sidewinder, the song, is because of how danceable it was. And I can just imagine people in the mid '60s putting this on the on the record player and dancing in their living room yeah um, I, I that's the, the greatness of this album i love that that sentiment there it just yeah it makes you want to move i mean it is it does swing right it's very swinging but it's also yeah it, it like it makes you want to move it makes you want to dance so i i definitely agree with you there max it's not just like you know super heavy swing or fast bebop you know it, it's got that kind of dance element to it as well um, and then we get a, a Lee Morgan solo first, which is appropriate as it is, you know, his album. And some things that stand out to me from Lee are just his articulation and his vibrato. Lee's style is just so unique. It's really, you can tell when Lee is playing, especially if you've listened to him just a little bit. You can always tell it's Lee Morgan in his playing. And I think that his, his articulation and his vibrato are two of the things that really kind of make his style stand out to me. So let's take a listen to, uh, Lee Morgan, a little bit of his solo and just listen for that articulation. Um, listen to the vibrato and in, in his phrases here at 159. Yeah. The other great thing about that snippet and about a lot of Lee's playing is his use of dynamics. Yep. And I, I, I think you were going to get to that. But to me, what came out to me was not only the ebb and flow of the lines themselves, but he is a master of what we call following the line, 
when you follow the line, usually, and I'm speaking generally, as general as possible, when you um, go up in your improvisatory line, you want to get a little louder. When you go down in direction, you want to get a little softer. Um, that's just a general rule. That's not a must with every line that moves up and down, but that can be um, a defining factor in terms of how well that comes across to a listener. And that just gives uh, dynamics to your line and to your movement and to your improvisation. That opens up what you're doing even more so. And Lee Morgan is a master of doing that. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, yeah, I was going to touch on his dynamics for sure. Just the way that he shapes his solos. It feels super organic. It feels very much him. Um, it's just, yeah, he's got such a unique style. He's not afraid to use repetition, um, blues, licks, and ideas. He's got the bop chop. So it's just he's got so many things. And this is like his playing kind of just feels like hard bop to a T, you know, and what hard bop's supposed to be, you know, the post bop era. And one thing that I really like as well is his use of space and rhythmic ideas. And so let's listen to um, a clip here that kind of exemplifies all of those things and that typical Lee Morgan sound. So it kind of encases everything we've talked about, um, you know, just then about Lee Morgan's sound here. And this is uh, 302 to 323 here. Oh, yep, and there are those uh, dynamics at the end. Max said right. following the line as the line goes down, he's going to taper off in dynamics. That's that's literally everything there that we just talked about. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. <laughs> you might think he is sometimes. You might be like, does Max even know what's going on? You know, but, you know, there's something there's something to it. Yeah, like that. I can point. See, I can point to those moments if I really have to prove it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, listen, it's all in the music there. But yeah. And then um, so that's just we're getting kind of an idea for, for Lee Morgan's sound and just like, yeah, all that it encompasses. There's so much that goes into his playing and so many different aspects. He's definitely not one dimensional. He's so multidimensional. That's why so many people love listening to Lee Morgan. And then we get uh, Joe Henderson solo and he starts his solo by quoting the end of Lee's solo, which obviously we love that. And then his solo, he takes that idea and he like really stretches it out and develops it. And then his solo kind of plays a lot off of the ideas and techniques that Lee had presented during his solo. So it, it feels almost like a conversation. Um, Max, what are some things that stood out to you about Joe's solo on this one? I want to let you talk a little bit about the, the sax solo here. Well, I agree that there are similarities in both the way Lee Morgan is, is approaching his solo and the way Joe Henderson is approaching his solo. And they're, you know, kind of Joe Hen is bouncing some ideas from Lee Morgan into his solo. And I think in general, Joe Henderson, especially on albums like this, is proving himself to be a master manipulator of repetition. He is so good at using repetition in his solos in an interesting way. I want us to let's do a little snippet of that. This is 343 to 405. Yeah, and this idea that he's, that he's playing with is the 
like we said, he kind of um, takes Lee Morgan's lick to end his solo. This is that lick that he kind of takes from Lee Morgan and runs with it. This is how he kind of repeats it and manipulates it. Let's listen for that here. Yeah, that's, yeah, he he's just riffing off of what he started with, and one thing that I, whole time I love about that Max is his ability to take that idea and not just kind of repeat it necessarily, but to repeat it in different ways. So to give us that idea, move it up in pitch, not start it at the same point in the measure. He's not afraid to start it on the beat, off the beat, speed the lick up, double time the lick, and change the the pitch so it's not like he's just sitting there and repeating the same thing he's being repetitive but he's not being redundant and i think that that's super super interesting to be able to take something and repeat it and make it super interesting in that way yeah that's why i say that's why i say master manipulator yep and usually we when we use that term manipulator we mean that in a negative context when we're talking about psychological issues of a person <laughs> but i'm just saying charles Mo- uh, no I'm just kidding. yeah right <laughs> There are certainly jazz uh, examples of that being, you know, present in in this music. But here, I mean, it as a as a big positive, as a way that um, describes Joe Henderson's approach and his ability to use repetition. But like you said, in a multitude of ways. Another moment where we can see that happen is uh, something else where i want to listen to it together this is 453 to 508 where he's just sort of continually playing a lick changing the speed and the rhythm of it and always making it feel good Mm. Uh. oh that's so good Right, he's just changing the speed of the of the same lick, but it 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 fits so well, and you would think maybe that could get clunky, maybe mm-hmm. that could not feel that great, but the way he does it, it feels so good. There's an ebb and flow to that repetition, um, and it's just another aspect of of Joe Henderson's playing that's just super top notch. Yeah, it takes a certain level of feel to be able to manipulate that one rhythm in that way right if you could do it and make and like max said it could be super clunky or sloppy if you weren't able to really like hone in on be deep in the pocket like joe henderson is and be able to manipulate you know play it double time and then back to regular and then kind of trip in a triplet fashion like so it does take you know that's there's a great level of feel that goes into playing something that is kind of super repetitive like that but it's not uninteresting just because it's repetitive Absolutely. Yeah. Spot on. And then we get into a, a Barry solo, Barry Harris. And this solo starts with him playing just like some mirrored lines on both hands on the piano. And it continues in that fashion for almost the entire solo. Um, and I think it's just, it's super unique. It's interesting. We don't kind of hear that super often, especially in bebop. You wouldn't hear a whole lot of mirrored lines especially in the fashion that he's doing he's not doing like really bebop lines um the lines are a little bit more 
out there, unique, rhythmic. Um, so it's cool. And some of what he's giving me or playing kind of gives me monk vibes. And Max had written down um Horace Silver as well. So I think that's a good like kind of a mix between those two. But it's not, it's just Barry Harris and himself too. So I there's a lot um of cool stuff. Max, what do you think about that that Barry Harris solo there? I think it's unique. It's very um reminiscent to me of Horace Silver. It reminds me a lot of Horace's playing on tunes like Song for My Father, where it's not really intricate, but it's interesting. It feels good. It's not giving the listener too much to listen to. Um, it's very much in the pocket, and, and the player's not enamored with playing as many notes as possible. And especially the start of Barry Harris's solo reminded me verbatim almost of Horace Silver and his approach to playing. Um, because when we think about Barry Harris, generally we think bebop. Yep. He's certainly a bop heavy player. A lot of what, you know, his concept is, is based in bop and the bop tradition, especially when he's, you can see those videos on YouTube where he's giving those master classes. It's all about different bop, um, uh, sort of practices in jazz music. Um, but here we, we're not really getting that we're getting another side of Barry Harris. And so to me, Barry Harris treats half of this album in this way, where it's kind of mimicking Horace Silver and a little monk, and he's kind of fusing the two together. And then the other half of the album is, is the traditional usual expected Barry Harris. That's very Bob heavy. And, and there's a lot of lines to it. And it's more Bob oriented. So I think there's two sides of Barry Harris we're getting on the Sidewinder. Yeah, for sure. And then one really cool aspect of this solo is towards the end of the piano solo, they start doing some uh, hits um, with the horns. Joe and Lee start doing some hits. And then Barry kind of starts doing more like rhythmic chordal stuff rather than kind of the the mirrored lines that he's doing before. And I think this is just a really cool aspect of the arrangement of this tune and i think this album's just so well arranged and so it's cool you know that's it's just this has obviously been thought out before that they were going to do these hits and barry harris the way he melds his solo into it i think is is really cool there and then we get a bass solo from bob crenshaw which is just like it's super melodic it's really interesting to listen to and i think it works really well with um the hits that uh Barry Harris is doing on the piano in the background and then um, there's the break at the end of the bass solo when we just go back into the head out and the head out is you know what you'd expect from that Max do you have anything else that you want to to add into this one the only point I would make which I'm gonna keep making as we keep reviewing this album is that the um, the amount of repetition is astronomical and the ways in which they repeat ideas concepts themes melodies is vast i mean another great aspect to this melody in particular is how repetitive the melody is and those hits are also repetitive you know that are a, a distinct part of the song's um overall feel and melody and approach and and everything that that defines the sidewinder repetition is a, is an essential part to not only this song but the album in general and we're going to keep seeing that come up over and over again. So I just want to say the melody itself is also pretty repetitive. And that makes it for a good song. You know, sometimes we, we can't have maybe too much repetition. But here we're getting the right amount because of the varying ways in which they repeat ideas. 
Yeah, and that feels like it almost has a link to some like, you know, pop music is fairly repetitive. And it's just when you use repetition, it just makes it easier for people to latch on to what you're playing sometimes. You know, that's why like a lot of pop music will be like, oh, this is so catchy. And a lot of what it is is just them kind of, you know, there's a lot of repetition in what they're doing and it's easy for it to get stuck in your head. And I think that might be easier for some people and why it was able to climb some you know, the Billboard Top 100 is because it had that similarity to kind of more, you know, pop music without being like, it's not cheesy or poppy at all. It's still jazz, but they're kind of playing on things that are familiar to, to the general audience. Absolutely. Now, the next track is another killer track called Totem Pole. And this is one of the top tracks on the album for sure. This is a Lee Morgan original as all the tunes are on this album. It's an AABA form. The A sections are sort of a Latin jazz groove with a two bar, um, rep, uh, basically two bar chords. So chords last two bars each instead of the usual one bar or sometimes half bar we would expect in a lot of straight ahead jazz. Um, and there's a great specific bass line, ostinato, that, that happens here from Bob Cranshaw, that's super hip. And then when they get to the bridge of the tune, it's swung. And so it swings really hard because we're going from that Latin feel to the swing feel. And so you can feel that swing just a little bit more pop out at you as a listener. Um, and the bridge is kind of made up of two sets of two five ones. I really dig this melody. It's intricate as there are small additions to the main melodic line that are super hip. Where you have the saxophone playing a few eighth notes while the trumpet holds on to a longer note. And there's also a cool break during the second A section. Just a lot of different techniques that this composition uses to its advantage. I want us to listen to that together. This is about the 27 second mark to about a minute 22. Dude, that bridge. How cool is that bridge? The whole the whole melody is super killer. The other great thing about this record is how great Lee Morgan's melodies are. Yep. Um, and the way that the two horns interact and go back and forth a little bit, you know, the one bar break there, um, the, the melodic line itself is just it's just in there. Everything about it. Yeah, and yeah, I love the harmony. I love the change of feel from the A sections to the bridge. Um, you get that swing feel in the bridge, but I love the harmonies in the melody in the bridge. They just really stand out to me, and their blending and the harmony there, it just, oh, man, it feels so, so good there. 
Yeah, I think it's a mixture of fourths, um, maybe some thirds and sixes as well. Yeah. So, you know, it's like the the typical threes and sixes you would expect with some fourths um, in, in, in the, in the, you know, the intervallic range between the trumpet part and the saxophone part. So, yeah, great harmony there. Great blending, as you've alluded to. Um, just super killer melody on this one, totem pole. The trumpet solo happens first. I think Lee Morgan plays some um, some stellar soloing. I think this is this is a, a little bit more of a dynamic solo we're getting from Lee Morgan than we did on the Sidewinder. There's also some heavy comping from Barry Harris to me. It seemed a little bit too heavy at times, um, but it kind of matches the overall feel of the song. So I'm not knocking what Barry Harris is doing. I just I just get the sense that every once in a while it's just a little bit too heavy from Barry. And he's more or less just sort of um, emulating what he did on the, on the head during those A sections behind the solos. And every once in a while, I wish he would just do something a little bit different when he's comping. I don't know if you caught that at all. Yeah, I I don't know. I I he is a very rhythmic comper, and he comper is that a word? I don't even know. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, he does have like a pretty heavy touch when it comes to some comping, especially like as solos build, he'll really really kind of get to where he's really emphasizing certain you know parts of the rhythm but it doesn't i don't know it doesn't really bother me it just feels like that's his style to me but i definitely see where you're coming from there are definitely parts of his his comping that are a, a lot heavier than than maybe some other players would do it yeah i don't know just a, just a personal uh, observation of mine um other than that though i think lee morgan knocks it out the park he's quite rhythmic here uh, he does do some bop lines during the bridge section, which is um, really, really hip. Um, yeah. What yeah. were you hearing? And I, I just love how differently he treats the A sections from the bridge on the solo. Like you said, you know, some more bop lines on the bridge. And he's doing a lot more kind of rhythm, rhythmic stuff on the A sections. And his feel and his rhythm is just killer. And it's, you know, it's fully evident there. The feel is so good. And his ability to kind of transition from the A sections to the B sections and how he's treating them differently. Absolutely. And then, of course, in addition to a great trumpet solo, we get a great uh, saxophone solo from Joe Henderson. Again, another example of him being a master manipulator of repetition. Very interesting to listen to. Um, I want to play a snippet of it. This is 352 to 420 of Johan's solo. Before you get into that, Max, I actually oh. caught a summertime quote at the very beginning of Joe Henderson's solo. So I want us to listen to that. It's it's just fun. And he takes the summer he quotes summertime, but then melds it into the the you know the beginning of his solo. So I want to listen to that before we get into your uh your example of the repetition. Let's listen to the beginning of Johan's solo here. Yeah. Yeah, it's great talking about quotes because they're you know, it's like some quotes you won't catch until the third, fourth, fifth, sixth time you listen to a solo. Yep. And then other quotes you'll get right away. 
That one for uh, me was just instantly the first two notes, that interval, I was like, he's quoting summertime and then he keeps doing it. And then he goes kind of takes it and goes in a different direction towards the very end of the quote. But yeah, I, I love that one there. Right. Yeah. That's the opening interval on summertime. Um, just, just great start to a solo and great use of quotes. We've talked about how some players may, uh, not focus on quotes as much, but I think they're an essential part to great jazz soloing is how do you use quotes and how many do you use and what type of quotes do you use? Um, it, it's a key aspect to your overall sound and approach as a player. Yeah, I love quotes because they just kind of, they feel so familiar. Like when you hear something that you've heard before, I don't know, it's just, it's fun to be, you know, like they're playing totem pole, but then he throws in some summertime into totem pole and that just feels, it feels like home, you know, like when you, you know, to us, you know, especially jazz musicians who get the quotes, not everyone's going to understand the quotes, but yeah, I, I definitely am, am with Max, but let's go ahead and listen to that section that Max wanted us to listen to and listen to that the master of the manipulation of repetition that Max was talking about here at 354. Yeah. Yeah, when he's going da 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 that was really unexpected. Um, but it fits so well because of the way he did it. And then he of course repeated it you know, soon after. Um, so it's just like every I don't know, eight well, I don't know, four or eight bars of that, there was a new theme or idea where he based his ideas on. And so he was repeating them in those different ways. Um while focusing on those individual melodic ideas he was creating in the moment and building off of them. Yeah, and it feels like both of these guys, Lee and Joe, are really good at kind of like that thematic development. And it almost feels like they're like just chapters in their solos. And they're like, they'll stay in one chapter, they'll develop it, and then they'll move on to like the next chapter. But it's all in the like in one big book, which is the entire solo. It all makes sense together. And yeah, like that repetition there, like I kind of talked about earlier is he played the idea, but then instead of like waiting for like whatever beat that it started on to repeat it, he's not afraid to start it on, you know, to repeat it quicker than you might expect. And it's kind of unexpected there. So he's not afraid to, to repeat an idea, mess with the rhythm, mess with certain parts of the idea and kind of manipulate it. Like Max is saying, just a beautiful master of the manipulation of, of that repetition there. Like Max was saying, I totally agree there. So after that stellar Joe Hinn solo, we get Barry Harris on piano soloing. And here his start really reminds me of Horace Silver. Um, and then he continues to shine a little bit more in the bridge, playing more in, what, in the style that you'd expect from Barry Harris. Let's listen to that. This is 528 to 548. Yeah. 
Right. Dwayne, what piano player does that remind you of? Anyone? I think there's one answer that stands above the rest, and that's definitely Bud Powell. When I heard that, when I saw you wrote that in there and you asked who that reminded me of, that is the first name that came to mind is is Bud Powell. Yeah, I th- I think it's Bud Powell with, with some sprinkling of Thelonious Monk. Yeah, yep. You know, it's just a prime example of of the um, multitude, multitude of uh, sources where Barry Harris is coming from when he's soloing. And as I don't know if you heard, but he kind of starts to swing um, before the bridge actually happens. So he's kind of foreshadowing the coming of the bridge yep. um, before it actually starts. So that's another cool aspect of that moment there. Yeah. Um, and it's also cool to listen to Bob Cranshaw's playing underneath the end of Barry Harris's solo. It gets a little bit busier, a little bit more rhythmic. So Bob is is adding a lot here. And then Lee Morgan does something that we've come across on Dexter Gordon's album Go, where a lot of times the leader will take a second solo on the same track. So here Lee Morgan does that. He does a second trumpet solo, and this time it's a busier solo from him on trumpet this time. And it lasts a whole two choruses. So it's a full second solo. A lot of times that second solo will be shorter than your first. Um, Here, I don't know. It's probably the same length, two choruses. So it's another complete solo we're getting. Um, And you can hear Billy Higgins playing more as the intensity grows underneath Lee Morgan. I want us to listen to that together because I think Billy Higgins shines on this one. Um, This is 745 to 822. So Billy Higgins is, is messing a lot with that press roll, that first section, and then he's he's adding more in between the spaces in the second A section. Um, so I just think Billy Higgins kind of comes alive during that moment, and we grow more in intensity, and Lee Morgan also comes out a bit more to me. He's also using a lot of repetition in that snippet as well as the trumpet soloist. So just a great snippet all in all. My only complaint would be what I mentioned earlier, where Barry Harris is kind of simply copying and pasting this comping rhythms that he does during the head during that moment in the trumpet solo. I don't know, maybe switch it up a little bit. I might be being a little bit too critical. Just something I noticed um, about Barry Harris's comping. Yeah. I, for once, Max, I think I'm going to go in a different direction. I I actually, I don't know. I, I feel like what he's doing there, the kind of syncopation of the comping it makes a lot of sense and it really kind of allows it drives the it drives kind of the feel while allowing Lee and Billy to kind of stand out above it all rather than it's kind of because that's it's kind of expected right you know what's what he's doing it's he's not changing the comping up a whole lot so it really kind of lets you listen more for he's kind of becoming 
almost just a drum, not a drummer, but a rhythmic part of the, you know, he's just doing rhythmic hits there. So it kind of, in my opinion, allows you to kind of get more into what Billy and Lee are doing there because he kind of takes a backseat and is just providing a little bit more of the, the rhythmic stuff there. I do agree there is rhythmic copying and um, there are multiple reasons why you can comp in that way. And there are different reasons why you may comp differently on different sections of a tune. Um, so I think it, I think you're right that it matches musically what's going on. I just expected maybe something different. Yeah. I, I guess I wanted more from Barry Harris there, but it's not like I'm missing anything. I just think more or not necessarily more, but something different could have occurred in the piano. And Sonny Rollins is really big on, on the idea that sometimes the piano player can play a little bit too heavy mm. and move the music in a direction that the leader, you know, the saxophone player in Sonny Rollins's case, didn't want to go. And so you're kind of forced to go wherever the piano player goes. You're at their discretion, even if it is a sax solo. Um, so to me, I, I, that was just a moment that reminded me of that sort of criticism that players may have of piano players like Sonny Rollins did, you know, his great album, the bridge had guitar guitarist, Jim Hall on it for, I think that reason is, is Sonny just wanted a little bit more openness in direction and a little bit lighter touch from a, a rhythm section, generally speaking. And so there, that moment reminded me of that. And I think I just wanted something a little bit different from Barry Harris. Yeah, no, and I definitely, I'm not going to tell you your opinion is uh, not valid. But yeah, just, uh, you know, my, why it might, you know, he might have done it that way, I think is important to, to think of as well. So yeah, but I definitely, I see what Max is saying. And Barry Harris does get really heavy in certain parts of his comping, which some players and some listeners might not be, you know, might not sit as well with them. I definitely understand that. Yeah, so just some food for thought. I, I may be way off base. Um, and then after that second solo from Lee Morgan, they repeat the head, and they repeat the last two bars of the form until they fade out. So we got a studio fade during the first track, and we're getting a studio fade during the second track, and there will be more studio fades to come. And, as and Max will I love have... every moment of it. <laughs> As uh, some may know, I'm not big on these studio fades if they're overdone. And I think one critique of this album is that they are overdone. And yeah. I and this one, I, I'm not sure if I'm a big fan of. I I actually I have to agree with with Max here. Um, the studio fades on s some of these tracks. I don't mind a studio fade in certain certain instances. I think they make sense, but I think that there's like studio fades in place of like a an interesting ending when it call a song may call for an interesting ending i don't love it when that happens so i think there are some tracks here that are just like the rhythm the a sections of the melody are so cool that you could have done so much more with the ending of the tune yeah exactly and i i think that could have been done here something yeah. more interesting than a fade on totem pole would have just been a nice bow to the present um, that we're getting with with this song so yeah for sure but if you know max you know any fade one two fades <laughs> is two fades too many on an album for max so we'll just we'll point that out just as a blanket statement but i'm just messing with max well let's get into the the third track on the album which is gary's notebook um 
This is has another super catchy melody. I mean, I don't even know if I had to say it. You could probably assume by now. Just a really catchy melody. Um, blues which in three, which is fairly unique. Um, it's cool to hear. And I just love the rhythmic comping at the beginning of uh, Joe Hen's solo. Um, and I think Max had a, a clip that um, you wanted to listen for and at 105 uh, talking about Joe Hen and kind of the manipulation of the repetition. Um, and I just think that the comping there is really the rhythmic comping there is uh, is really cool to listen for as well. And I think there's um, lots of good intervallic movement from Joe during his solo. I don't know if it happens here, but let's listen to Max's uh, section he wanted us to listen for here. And this is 105 to 145. What a section. I'm glad you picked that to listen to. Well, again, it's just proof in the pudding. He is a master manipulator of repetition. I don't care if it sounds negative. It's a positive compliment. And yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, I just I definitely agree. And there's just so much going on in that clip. First of all, Johan is swinging super hard, especially when they get to the change in the field, the swing feel. We heard that rhythmic comping. And I just listen like Listen for how together the rhythm section, how Barry Harris, um, Billy Higgins, and Bob Cranshaw, they almost sound like just one thing, you know, like they're so together in those rhythmic hits. It's just, it feels perfect. And yeah, Joe Hen over top is just, is killing. And there is that intervallic movement from Joe Hen, which I think is pretty cool to hear kind of like some different movement, not just necessarily lines moving in, in intervals, which is cool as well. It's another example of what to do with just two notes. You know, at, yeah. is the, at the start of that snippet, we get that. Um, and I, I would agree that comping here, uh, I'm, I'm definitely more impressed by, or I really dig it um, on, on this track. I'll, I'll throw out it, but especially during that snippet too. Yeah, for sure. And then we get um, a very rhythmic beginning of Lee's solo, which is kind of fits the, the, the tune, the changes in the tune and the way that the tune works. Um, and I just really love how we kind of talked about this, how Lee's solos have these themes, which in which each kind of seem like their own chapter of the story. And there's a really cool example of this from 257 to 330. Just listen for the thematic development of the first two ideas and then kind of the next chapter with the more rhythmic section to close out the solo. This is uh, here at 257.
Mm. Well, my head was bopping throughout all that. <laughs> yeah. It's a great moment. Yeah. I just love, you can hear just very clearly like him take a, an idea and develop it. Right. And then he will kind of move on. He'll close that chapter and move on to the next chapter. And he took another idea, kind of did similar things with the first two ideas, just took different ideas and then just kind of a whole new thing with that kind of repetitive rhythmic idea there to close out the solo. It's just, I think that's killer and just great development from his solo there. Yeah. And, and that seems to be a common aspect to each of these players is their abilities, um, their individual abilities to, repeat an idea in a multitude of ways and they're also i think somewhat copying one another yeah and we'll see that more evident as we keep going on the next couple of tracks where uh, a lot of players are just using similar ideas that the player before them used in their solo or maybe they're doing a lot with um just just uh repeating a certain snippet of somebody's idea and then taking that and running with it and developing that little part of somebody's bigger idea yep i was yep i love that yeah that that's another key aspect of this album and i also love what um barry harris does at the start of his solo on this track yep he basically is quoting salt peanuts for a whole course <laughs> yeah so can we listen to that that's around 330 to 345 yep so. and it yeah, and I just want to say the start of each player solo is treated the same in terms of the feel. That that initial feel during the first chorus of each solo is is um is that is that same sort of straighter feel and then they start swinging heavier the second chorus of each solo. Yep. <laughs> oh yeah yeah i love that just like we said the quotes and just like the language that's great and just yeah the kind of starting the solo in the same way that both of the other guys did is is you know it feels like it's a conversation a lot of this this album feels like it's almost just a conversation between all of the the musicians on it yeah absolutely and barry harris shows more of of his bop approach as he continues to solo and in here it's more quintessential Barry Harris. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think as this solo goes on, you kind of get that typical Barry Harris feel um, with the bebop soloing. Then we really have gotten much at all on the album. So it's good to hear that. I mean, we knew it was there, um, but it comes out here. And then after the melody um, or after Barry Harris's solo, they go back to the melody and then this studio fade, there's a studio fade at the end of this one. This one makes basically zero sense to me during this like really rhythmic section. Like it's really rhythmic. It doesn't feel like it needs a fade. It's not like the music's kind of like getting quieter. They're like, it's just like this really cool rhythmic section. And it's like, why not do something that resolves to the one and end the tune or just something. Take this rhythm and do something with it to end the tune. Max, what did you think about the, the ending here? I'm sure Max loved, the, loved this fade. Well, this is the third fade in a row uh, on an ending, um, and that's going to start to piss me off. <laughs> I don't know why. You didn't like I, it? Uh, no. Oh, okay. no. Uh, yet another fade out, predictable, let's do something else, even if it's just a stab or something. 
And yeah, you're right. It's yeah. more it's more rhythmic. They could ride out from that. I, I understand, you know, you gotta worry about time and how much time you're taking and, and you want to be able to put, you know, whole tracks on a record. Um, but three in a row starts to get to me and it it's just a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, it seems. It just seems to annoy me. I don't know why. Um, I just think you could have done something out of three of them, at least do something different on one of them. Um, so I, I it, yeah, it, it got to me for sure. Especially on tracks where it like, there's like, it sets up for something cool. If there's like not really a lot going on at the end, like I can understand a fade, but like some of these tracks set up for like a cool ending and that's just a fade. So I don't know. I'm with Max on this one. I'm team, I'm team no fade out here. <laughs> at least on this third track. Um, Otherwise, it is a great, catchy melody. It is a, you know, there's some fantastic soloing and comping going on. I will say, if there was one melody that I thought was not 100% awesome, it was this one, this third track, Gary's Notebook. Yeah. Only because somewhere in between, you know, the second line of everything from the four chord to the time they go back to the one, it's not as catchy it just seems a little too busy it starts out really well and i think the first four or eight bars of the of the head is really catchy um but it's just the the next set of of eight bars i'm just not really digging it seems a little clunky it's like they're throwing too much in it doesn't breathe as well as it should during that part of the melody and i'm being kind of super critical because i have to be in order to really analyze this album effectively and 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 give the people what you know what i really think about some of these moments it's just that everything else is so perfect except for that section of the melody that that comes out to me in such a way that it it's 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 slapping me in the face at how a little clunky that section of this head gary's notebook is as compared to every other head on this track or not this track but this album being super stellar super um reminiscent of the bebop era and 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 the practices that occurred then that it's just everything else we're getting is super in there except for this little section of gary's notebook yeah and i can definitely i can understand that criticism and we've got to find we i mean this is a fantastic album but we got to find some things where you know we can't just let them get away with the whole thing being just great we got to find something to be like all right this might have been could have been improved. So I, I, I like Max's um Max's thought there, you know, to where that part of the melody just didn't wasn't as good as the rest of the other melodies on the the album necessarily. Right. And then the next track we get a song called Boy What a Night. And this is sort of a faster blues and it's kind of a happier vibe we're getting. Um very positive sort of feel we're getting on Boy What a Night. And I like to think of it as in 12-8, and that's essentially what it is. It's 12-8. You could maybe think about it as 6-8, where you're doing two bars per every one bar in the 12-bar blues form. But I think it kind of makes the most sense to think about it as sort of a faster 12-8 blues. I did find a chart online that put this song in 3-4. And that just way overcomplicates it. It makes no sense. You're making the form a lot longer than it needs to be. If you just feel it out like a 12-bar blues in 12-8, it'll get the job done. And that's what you're going to think. That's what you want to think about with this song and its form. 
Yeah, three four makes absolutely no sense. I think it's criminal. Whoever wrote that chart in three four, they need to be reported to the jazz police immediately. <laughs> Tournament. Yeah, it was on. Yeah, it was on either Muse Score or Scribd. You know, sometimes you can find charts on there um, for free, or if you you know you're a subscriber, uh, you can find a lot of charts that you couldn't find anywhere else. And sometimes they're wrong. Uh, just like that one was. Don't do a three four. Three four and six eight and twelve eight are all different. Um, even though it's still dealing with overall three, we want to think one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Then the next measure for sure. Yep. This starts off with the rhythm section, and there's some nice playing from Barry Harris, who does a really nice job opening up this this selection. Billy Higgins on drums is really cool to listen to too. And I love the one bar break that happens right before the head comes in after that initial introduction. They do the head two times through overall, like I said, a really happy vibe. And I find it very interesting that they do the one bar break lick from the melody into the first solo. I would have expected them to leave that open and to have that be sort of a solo break that we're used to. But I want us to listen to that together. This is 155 to 202 where they're going from the head into the first solo. I kind of like it. I kind of like it, but a part of me, um, I don't know. I just thought it would be a cool solo break, but it's not like you have to do that. I mean, it, it is kind of cool that they didn't do that and yeah. didn't do what I expected. Yep. That's, that's where I'm at. It's like, I'm sure Joe Henderson could have done a, like a really cool break, you know, solo over the break, but he also treats this the way he does it is also interesting. So you know, I like, you know, it's different. So it might not have been the most swinging thing to do, but it's it's unique. And so you want some some of that personal flavor in, in certain moments for sure. Also, Joe Henderson is great at combining longer note-filled phrases followed by very repetitive, fast ideas. And we can get that in this solo. I want us to listen to that together. This is 225 to 252. And that time he didn't use any repetition. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> you pretty much only used repetition. Oh man, it's still oh I love that though. And I love what you're talking about there. Kind of combining the longer notes into shorter, you know, rhythmic phrases there. I definitely see what you're you're saying there, Max. And that kind of to me defines part of the Joe Henderson approach. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can hear that on tunes like Recordame. Where, where he'll do these longer note-filled phrases where where there'll be snippets of common jazz language um, licks in there, but they're going by so fast, you have to, <laughs> you know, slow it down or just or just listen to it over and over again to really get them. Because um, he's just throwing stuff at you over and over and over again in a fast way. And then immediately after that, he'll do like a repetitive idea that's soulful and rhythmic. And sometimes he'll move the, the speed of it faster or slower. And he's great at combining those those two ideas. Yeah. Um, so it's just an, another great moment from Joe Henderson on this. And I think the tail end of Joe Henderson's solo 
on uh, Boy One a Night kind of reminds me of Sonny Rollins a little bit, especially mm-hmm. he's playing on Tender Madness and St. Thomas. We get a little hint of that towards the end of Joe Henderson's solo. And then they keep the break in the form. They do a solo break into the trumpet solo. So they didn't do an initial one, but they'll do it for Lee Morgan. And Lee kind of starts off with high notes. He comes in hot and then backs off. So great ebb and flow, great movement to Lee Morgan's solo, great development and phrasing throughout. This is a snippet of it I want to listen to. This is 407 to 433. Yeah. Yeah. And again, more repetition. But I think what I really wanted to point out there was how smooth Lee Morgan is. Yeah. The way, you know, the way he moves through his improvisatory passages, the different tones he's getting, it's effortless, it's smooth, it's in the pocket, it feels good, it's dynamic, and it's always musical. Yeah. And I, I, I when I think of Lee Morgan, that's kind of how I think of Lee Morgan in general like i think of him as this like smooth slick like and it's just all from his playing it's from hearing him he sounds so cool in the way he plays and i don't know i don't know if i've ever really listened i don't know if he's done any interviews i've never i don't know much you know i've seen the documentary about him but other than that like i don't know just a lot of it comes from his playing like how i feel about him you know his whole being comes from that coolness and smoothness in his playing oh yeah it's it's um you know, we, we generally want to have our instrument as an extension of our own body. It's kind of a third limb as um, a way to express ourselves in the moment, in the music. And Lee Morgan always gives us that. And I just think the smoothness of with which he plays is a definitive part of Lee Morgan. Not only the musician, but the person. Must have been a smooth cat. And, um, yep. <laughs> you know. We also get Barry Harris doing a great solo who also uses quite a bit of repetition. This is a snippet of that I want us to listen to. Maybe you think they're rubbing off on one another, these players, when they're improvising. We, we mentioned it earlier. I think they're bouncing ideas from one to the next or they're all sort of listening really intensely to each other and pulling their ideas from one another. This is 518 to 532. It almost sounds like someone grabbed a saxophone, played a solo, grabbed a trumpet, played a solo, and then hopped on the piano and played another solo. Like that's like it almost sounds like it's like it's the same person playing all these solos. What's going on here? <laughs> well, you know, the way he's just repeating one note, I can't think of an of another moment where Barry Harris does that. I mean, maybe there is. I of course I haven't checked out his whole discography or anything. But you know, he's just really sort of in there um, pulling from these other cats and just just simply using repetition in a way that opens up what he's doing. It doesn't sort of stifle it or diminish it. It actually makes it more interesting to listen to. 
Yeah, and he's definitely one of the most versatile piano players that we've seen. And that's that wouldn't be his typical style. You know, that's not how he's typically going to play. You might get, and that's like where a lot of this kind of reminds me of like some of the Monk stuff. You know, like Monk would do stuff like that where he'd, you know, use some more dissonance or repeat notes. You know, not afraid to just really repeat notes and still, you know, bring the swing into it as well. But. That's like some. That's why some parts of this gives me kind of monk vibes. There is uh, some of the the moments like that. I think there was at one time um, where Barry Harris either lived with Thelonious Monk or lived inside of Thelonious Monk's home, where Monk was close with a, a jazz patron named Panonica, hmm. um, and and either. Some there's a there's a Thelonious Monk Barry Harris connection um, in the history. I think in the early to mid seventies, and I'm not exactly sure the story, but one way or another, Barry Harris was was kind of close with Monk. So I, I think you know being around each other may have rubbed off on on Barry Harris. And I don't know when that initial sort of connection occurred because um, this album is 64, 65. So yeah. you know earlier than the than the early seventies, but. You know they're they're all in there with one another, listening to each other, um, and bouncing bouncing ideas off of one another. And Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk were also pretty close. Yeah. So you know that that sort of lineage of piano playing is there, and you can hear that in those moments. Um, and then after the key solo, we get the head out, and they actually do an ending. Now I'm so excited and satisfied that they actually have an ending that we have to listen to it together <laughs> this is <laughs> the end of boy what a night this is 7 11 to 7 30 oh it better be the best thing i've ever heard max <laughs> How hard was that? I don't know. It's certainly not earth shattering, <laughs> but it's an ending. And I love oh. that there's an ending. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. It's like, how hard was that? I don't know. Who kn- I don't know. I wish we could ask these guys why they, you know, and who knows if it was, if it was their decision. You never know. Yeah. It may um, not have been their decision. They've may have been the, pro- the these producer. These A&Rs. Yeah. They, they're not swinging. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> also... One thought is um, maybe they didn't have enough studio time to actually think through an ending. You know, they just had to do tr- song, next song, song, next song. Um, or they took too many takes of a song or something where they didn't have time to really do an ending. So they said, we'll just fade it out. I don't know, because the rest of the album seems so well thought out. Like, it seems like know. there was so much time to write the melodies play practice the melodies because there's like it's you know that like joe henderson knows these melodies he's not just like fumbling his way through the melodies like he's playing the melodies as they were written um whether or not lee morgan wrote them out or what you know like what the case was i don't know it just seems like the rest of it's all so well put together that the endings that seems like they had to have had time to do something with the endings. And I know that they're good enough to do something more than the studio fade outs. We know, I mean, it doesn't, I don't know. It's not beyond them to be able to end these songs in a, a way that makes sense. And I think that's why it annoys me so much because I, I know we can 
I don't want to say do better, but I know we can do a little bit more or do something more interesting. Um, I, I don't know. These melodies are so great. The improvisation is so great. The interaction, um, the use of repetition is, is so phenomenal that you would think, why not, you know, why not have an actual ending to, to a lot of these songs? And it just, it bothers me that we get to the fourth track and there's a, there's an actual ending. Whereas the first three tracks on an album, which is a majority of this record do not actually have endings. Yeah. It seems like a little fault. Yeah. If there is like one thing to point out about this album, you know, one thing to kind of criticize about this album, I think that's, that's probably the biggest criticism that we'd have. And it's like, it's not that something's bad. They're not doing something bad. It's just, it feels like it's missing a little something. I definitely, I agree with Max. Um, probably more so on this one than some of the other studio fade outs that Max tends to get uh, a little <laughs> heated about. This one, I, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm on board uh, with Team No Fade Out on this one for sure. Yeah, and, and this one had that ending, so it's it's a great one because there wasn't another ending on the album. I don't know, do they end Hocus Pocus? I think that one's a fade out too. No, they, so they end Hocus Pocus. Okay, they actually end that one too. Yeah. So that's the next track, the last track of the album called Hocus Pocus. Dwayne, what do we got with Hocus Pocus? I want to say first that this is a great tune to play right around the time of Halloween. Yeah, it doesn't feel very <laughs> Halloween, but the the title, I guess you could. I mean, what a that's like a perfect Halloween title. So, yeah, if you're a jazz man on a, on a gig on Halloween, call Hocus Pocus, baby. I yeah. mean, you can't go wrong. Yeah, why not? Um, but yeah, this is just it's an AABA form and just another super solid melody. I mean, it's every track on this album. The melodies are. What kind of what stand out? They're so catchy. And I think that, you know, we kind of talked about this album's relatability. And I think that's definitely plays into it a lot is how well thought out and how catchy these melodies are. And just the solo from Joe Henderson on this recording on this track is just so, so good. Um, I love there's like lots of great lines, lots of great ideas. And I just love the way that he outlines the the changes in during this track. And let's take a listen for kind of a section where he's playing and you can hear him kind of outlining through the, the changes. This is 153 to 203. So just a, a small section of, of his solo here. Yeah. Yeah, the movement, the flexibility, um, the range of, of what Joe Anderson is using, it just it's so dynamic. Yeah, and you can really hear him. You can hear the changes in the rhythm section, but also in what he's playing. And I just really I appreciate that. It kind of, you know, the music really moves. Um, and then Lee also does a, a great job as well during his solo, outlining a lot of the changes. And then um barry harris we get an example of what barry harris is playing is like typically and it's just bop masterful and so we're gonna get into a a section of that during um this song this is 357 to 422 here
Yeah. Yeah, that is what I was talking about earlier, where where we're getting you know both sides of Barry Harris, maybe. Yeah. Um, where here we're obviously getting the Bob Heavy approach that we've grown accustomed to um, contextually putting Barry Harris into. Uh, it, it, he just is a master of what he's doing, throwing in a lot of language. You can hear some lines that I've heard from Miles Davis that he threw in there. I can hear some bird in there. Um, just, just some great bebop playing there. And that right hand, heavy, linear approach is the epitome of what that snippet is. Yeah, and be remiss not to mention Bud Powell again, too, with that right hand, linear approach there. And the exactly. influence that Bud Powell had on him. And then the drum solo here, it's just, I love this drum solo. It's so awesome how they mix kind of the A section melody and then they play the bridge straight like during the drum solo. I think that that's a really cool, like the arrangement of this song and of the album's just so awesome. We get to feature Billy Higgins a little bit, which is really nice. And I think this is just a really fun track altogether. Um, and it's a really great way to end the album, in my opinion. I would agree. Um, the one thing I would say is that Billy Higgins at moments, I think behind the piano solo in particular, can be a bit distracting on the snare drum. Sometimes he's doing a little too much on the snare drum. And that can be a little bit distracting when I'm listening to Barry Harris's solo. Otherwise, I love what Billy Higgins is doing um, during his solo and the arrangement of that solo is super fantastic. Um, I just wish he would just ease it up a little bit on the snare drum when you're behind a rhythm section player. You can be that way behind a horn player, but it's a little too much for me behind Barry Harris. Yeah, I can definitely understand what you're what you're saying there, especially with the difference between comping behind a pianist versus like a, a horn player there. And then one general critique um, after every track, you know, listening and going over every track is that there is no ballad. Yeah. So, but, you know, when I'm listening to this, it's not as if I'm missing a ballad. Yep, that's I, what I was going to say. I think I'm getting everything I'm expecting and more in, in terms of um, the, the concepts that are fundamental to this album, the hard bop experience that is this album you know i'm not missing a ballad it's just it's just interesting to note that there is no ballad and generally typically you would see at least one on an album like this but here we don't get one yeah and normally i would i would be like i would almost be criticizing there not being a ballad on an album i think that most great jazz albums have ballads and they need ballads right but on this one this is one where i'm like I think to myself is, does this need a ballad? Would it make more sense with a ballad or does it make more sense without the ballad? And I think for this one, the answer might be that it makes more sense without the ballad. And I think they would have killed a ballad. They would have done great on a ballad, but I just don't know how much it, it really is needed here on, on this album. I think you're right. It doesn't need a ballad, which is kind of um, the opposite of what you would think of when you you're thinking of a quintessential jazz record yeah. is that there's usually one ballad. You know, we went over something else, the great cannibal Adderley Bluno recording, and that had a ballad on it dancing in the dark. Yep. Um, but the key tracks on that album are autumn leaves and the Cole Porter tune love for sale. Um, 
it, and it's like the ballad is so great and Cannibal Adderley is so great at, at expression and playing a ballad, you know, with his vibrato and approach that it's super fantastic, but you don't necessarily remember something else for Dancing in the Dark. You remember it for those other tunes and the arrangements and the intros and the way Miles and Cannonball interact or the way they arrange um, how they how they play on a track. Um, so it's not necessarily essential. It's just you would think there would be one. But I think you're right. It's not necessarily needed here. Yeah, and it it's kind of like I want to point to like some other albums to where the ballads do really stand out to me like we we did dexter gordon's go and dexter gordon's ability to play on ballads i think that the two ballads on that one they add a lot to that record and his playing i mean we just started um we just added in one of the ballads from that album to our our set list because it's just such what's wow what's the name of the tune um i guess i'll hang my tears out to yeah tr- wow. out the dry i couldn't remember that for some reason dude yeah like oh man just killer ballads and a place, you know, some albums like that, it's just that the ballads add so much to it. And then there are other albums like this, the Sidewinder, where it's just, I don't think that they would add as much to it necessarily as, as on that album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Cool. Well, let's get into our top threes and our not so hot tracks for the album before getting into our overall album thoughts and our ratings for this one. Max, why don't you go ahead and go first with your, your top three and your not so hot Number one, I put Totem Pole. I think Totem Pole is is my favorite track on the record. It's the second track right after the Sidewinder. Um, I, I think it's really dynamic. I love the change in feel. Super fantastic soloing. Great uses of repetition. The melody is dynamite. It's stellar composition. Lee Morgan is shining on his solo and his composition skills on Totem Pole. To me, it's the obvious number one on this record. Number two being the title track, The Sidewinder, the first song on the album. It was a hit in its day, and it remains a hit when you decide to check it out for yourself. I mean, it, it's so catchy. It's danceable. The The arrangement, the composition, the playing, it's dynamic. It's unexpected at times. You get a little different feel from Barry Harrison. You would initially think um i think joe hen's playing on it in particular is very interesting to listen to so great track the title track the sidewinder and then my third favorite is hocus pocus which is the last track on the album great composition i love how catchy the melody is and i love the call and response between the horns and the rhythm section on those hits during the a section of the head super killer the not so hot It was really difficult for me to pick one, but I went with Gary's Notebook for the reason I said earlier, where there's that sort of chunk between the four chord going back to the one chord in the melody that's not as as great as the rest of the melody on that head and is not as great as the rest of the melodies on this album. It's a little clunky, a little too mixed or complex, I would say, just a little too busy during that chunk of the melody on Gary's notebook. Otherwise, I think it's great playing, great soloing. I love the development that's in there and a lot of the musicians' solos and the interactions are great. The copying is great. The cop, the um, the sort of uh, the tune arrangement, I love going. It's kind of like an extended minor blues. So I love that of Gary's notebook. It's just that chunk of the melody got to me 
And that is why it's my not so hot. Yeah, and I'll definitely agree that it was really hard to really pick a not so hot for this one. Um, but for my top three, I had Totem Pole number one as well. I think the melody is so intriguing, so interesting. The bridge is incredible. The melody over the bridge, I just love that so much. I think it's so blended so well. Um, and just everything about it, the solos are great too. I think, yeah, Totem Pole, although it's not the track that's maybe the most popular, I think it's my favorite track on the album. But then we'll get into my number two, which is the Sidewinder. It's essential hard bop. It's It was... A single that reached 87, 83 on the the Billboard Top 100 for a reason. Um, it's very approachable. The playing's great. The melody's fantastic. It's super interesting to listen to. I agree with everything Max said. Yeah, the Sidewinder is a great track, and I'm with Max on all these. Hocus Pocus is uh, my my third track on my top three. I think it's just super fun. It's super interesting. The playing is really great. We get a lot from Barry Harris on Hocus Pocus. Um, so I definitely, I enjoy that one as well. And then my not so hot, I went in a little bit different of a direction. I think that it's pretty obvious that those three tracks are standout and then, but it's not to say that the other two tracks aren't fantastic. This one was a hard one to pick a not so hot, but just for me between the other two tracks, um, I think the track that I enjoy less is boy, what a night. Um, I just, I kind of like the three feel in, in Gary's notebook. I like the feel of that. I like the, that song. Um, but it's not to say that I don't like Boy What a Night. So it's kind of it was kind of hard. So I just had to pick the one of the two that kind of spoke to me a little bit less, and that was that was Boy What a Night. Um, but I cool. think, uh, yeah, I think Gary's Notebook is a little bit more memorable. But I enjoyed Boy What a Night just so much because of the blues influence mm-hmm. in it, the great playing, the feel. I love the twelve eight. Yep. I love the twelve eight. So it could not be my not so hot. Yeah, and I think at that point, it's not even our not so hots. It's probably like just our personal opinions on which of the two like really great songs we liked a little bit more. So at that point, mm-hmm. we're just splitting hairs. We're not to say that either of those tracks aren't good. Like they're every single track on this album's great, and that's why we're gonna get into our thoughts and our ratings, and we're gonna tell you, you know, kind of what we what we feel about it and what we rate it. So um, I'll get into my my thoughts and my ratings here. I think that the Sidewinder presents itself as one of the the preeminent Harbops recording of the era and the music definitely lives up to that hefty praise. The album is so well-crafted and curated from end to end. Lee's ability to create fun and interesting melodies is on display full force here. And Joe Henderson does a great job of syncing up with Lee on these. And it's hard to find an album that feels as well-rehearsed, well-written and fun as fun to listen to as this one, in my opinion. The entire group is on the same page here, and it's evident from their treatment of the melodies to the style of their soloing. And although Lee Morgan's name is on the cover, and it truly is his recording being comprised completely of his compositions, it seems like it's much more of a collective top, or a collective of the top-notch jazz greats than one great leading the rest of the group. Joe Henderson adds so much to the album, and there's so much attention to detail and intention in his style and his playing on the album. Um, there's a certain musical chemistry here with Lee and and Joe that leads to so many of these magical moments on the album. And lots of the moments on the album are just this hard bop conversation between 
Lee and Joe, and they're just unafraid to take what the other guy said and just run with that. And so it's just this great conversation between two jazz greats. And the rhythm section is certainly elite on this one, and everything feels so good on the Sidewinder. Barry Harris gives us lots of different ideas, and he's definitely unafraid to try some different things while soloing, while making sure to refer back to his bebop roots, just so we know that he's still got it. And then Bob Cranshaw and Billy Higgins, they're just two of the best in the business, and it's no wonder that they got the call so often and from so many different cats to record they're right in the pocket at all times and they're super locked in just super tight the whole way through and although there are like very many deep re- uh, musical reasons to why the sidewinder is an essential piece of jazz listening i think that one thing that helps this album really stand out is the enjoyability uh, to the general public this album has so much for jazz enthusiasts like us to be enamored by but maybe more importantly lee morgan has this unique ability to make the music so approachable to anyone and so fun to listen to it really brings me back to kind of our thoughts on soul station by hank mobley which is really able to capture an audience in a similar way and if you haven't listened to this album yet, what are you doing? So my <laughs> my rating is a 9.4 out of 10. This is this is a, a classic album for sure. That's funny. If you're not listening to the Sidewinder, are you really listening? Yeah, what are you Yeah, if you haven't ever listened to this, like what are you listening like what are you listening to? <laughs> I would also say the Sidewinder is a must listen album which needs to be explored by any jazz listener, as we were just talking about. There are multiple themes and concepts found in this record that tend to be great learning tools in addition to being entertaining and fulfilling music to engage with. One of the big picture concepts to grasp is the fact that this is a prime example of original compositions in the classic hard bop style. Lee Morgan's writing includes great melodies, small and intricate feel-good compositional techniques, as well as the blues. This is the epitome of the hard bop era. One of the major concepts I've found while listening to the Sidewinder is the constant yet other, sorry, yet always interesting use of repetition. Joe Henderson on tenor sax often improvises in a manner that seems to be based on the use of repeated ideas, themes, and melodies he creates while in the moment. This is also illustrated in the playing of trumpeter Lee Morgan and pianist Barry Harris. Many of the compositions include repetition in their melodic makeup as well. The ways in which these musicians use and manipulate the practice of repetition is artistic and at times multidimensional. While most of these melodies are stellar, the melody, excuse me, the melody to Gary's Notebook is a bit clunky when compared to the other originals on the album. Also, the studio fade-out is used one too many times for my liking. If there is greatness to a tune's melody, improvisations, and arrangement, why not have a thought-out, interesting ending? The overuse of fade-outs may just be a possible pet peeve of mine I just have to deal with. The rhythm section is an all-star cast that includes well-known player and educator Barry Harris on piano, Longtime Sonny Rollins bassist Bob Cranshaw and the great Billy Higgins on drum set. All three mold cohesively while interpreting Morgan's work extremely well. At moments, Barry Harris seems slightly hesitant, yet his playing is very strong and sometimes reminds me of both Horace Silver and Thelonious Monk. 
The pianist is known for his bop-heavy style, which is showcased nicely on Totem Pole and Gary's Notebook. Harris's comping may be too predictable and in the way at moments, like on Totem Pole, yet he succeeds in fulfilling his role in the ensemble quite nicely and is ultimately a tasty addition to the group. Occasionally, Billy's snare drum is a bit too distracting, yet his musical prowess is well witnessed on Hocus Pocus. Cranshaw is featured with a bass solo on the title track, which surprisingly ended up on both the pop and jazz charts in the mid-1960s. It's hard to imagine a tune like the Sidewinder, which is a long song that includes a bass solo, ending up on the pop charts today. The combined sonic reality of Lee Morgan and Joe Anderson is a supreme dream team. The two blend well while Joe seems to complement Lee Morgan's tunes quite nicely. Lee's originals on this album, like the Sidewinder, are danceable and are interesting compositions with awesome melodies. His trumpet playing is dynamic, smooth, intricate yet accessible, and authentic. It also seems as if each of these players, in particular Lee and Joe, have a considerable amount of attitude in their playing. This tends to bode well for the music and the listener's experience. The Sidewinder is an album that ultimately characterizes the hard bop genre while displaying superb improvisations from jazz greats like saxophonist Joe Henderson. The presence of energy and attitude is also included here. Lee Morgan's The Sidewinder is one of those albums you never knew you needed until you check it out for yourself. After you listen the first time, I bet you'll never stop coming back to it. Overall score, 9.3 out of 10. Yeah, and I think Max makes a lot of really great points there. Um, And just, you know, we kind of have mentioned why this album is such a classic. And so our overall, our jam score, our jazz jam score on this one is going to be a 9.4 out of 10. And so um, we're actually going to be doing a little bit of something different for the next three episodes. So the Grammys are coming up the first week of February, I think February 5th. Um, So what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks on the podcast is we're not going to be doing any classic albums for the next three weeks. We're going to be doing all three albums that are three of the albums that are nominated for the Grammys. We've actually done one already. If you want to go back and listen to it, it's called new standards volume one by Terry Lynn Carrington. That one's up for one of the instrumental, um, uh, jazz instrumental album nominations. And we're going to be doing another one next week of, from that same category, Max, what album are we going to be doing next week? Yeah, we're going to be going over the, the album called Long Gone, which is a, a 2022 album from Joshua Redman, Brad Meldow, Christian McBride, and Brian Blade. So Oof. second, yeah, <laughs> killer cast there. It was actually recorded uh, the tail end of 2019, but I assume because of the COVID-19 pandemic, they waited to release it until September 2022 and so it is up for a nomination in the best instrumental jazz album category so we're going to go over that one and then there's going to be some other ones that, that we do the the following couple of weeks that are also nominated for the Grammys like you said so we're going to be really getting into really new jazz really in the moment um, things that that are up for for the awards coming up and and we'll see what we think whether Dwayne and I see eye to eye we may see some differences it's going to get interesting the next few weeks on on the jazz jam 
Yeah, and I think one thing that we're definitely wanting to do as well is we're going to listen to basically all of the jazz albums that are up for, um, you know, that are nominated, and we're going to have our own picks. Max and I are going to pick what our our Grammys, you know, um, that we would pick of each category, and we'll see kind of, yeah, if we're on the same page or if those albums that we like also get the Grammys. So, yeah, definitely just a fun time. We're going to really dive in and, you know, take the Grammys into to full force here on the jazz jam podcast and see what's going on with them i think it's going to be really fun but it's a lot of work uh we're we're going to have a lot of homework ahead of us and hopefully we'll get it done either way we're going to make some some interesting predictions hopefully and we're really going to explore new jazz right now and and what's you know what's being recognized by the grammys and 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 those in the know and those who who have the power to to give those awards we're going to see what we think and, and analyze them, explore them, and and go through those these albums, review them. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, we have a lot of listening to do over the next few weeks. Um, but we're going to start with listening to uh, Long Gone by Joshua Redman. So what better place to do it than with that album? I'm really excited for that one, and we'll, we'll catch you guys next week with that one. Uh, definitely looking forward to, to listening to that. And I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. Um, it's been a really fun episode. We've finally gotten into Lee Morgan and Joe Henderson. So that's been really cool. And definitely, if you want to reach out, feel free to reach out to us. The Jazz Jam Podcast at gmail.com is a great way to do that. Our Instagram, The Jazz Jam Podcast, definitely go follow us there. We post lots of fun content there. And just our website has basically all of that stuff. If you want a place for everything, it is our website. It's linked in the bio. So I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening to today's episode. And this has been an episode of the Jazz Jam Podcast. (laughs) 